This message was presented at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Well, let's go ahead and move forward. What I want to do today is I want us to look at the future and look at some different visions for the future, um, some secular visions for the future and some um, yeah, technological visions of the future and just think about how, how do we relate to these different visions for the future? Can we buy into them? Are they incompatible without great hope? And so how do they relate? So let me go ahead and say a word of prayer, and we'll pray that the projector works, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father God, we've been um, covering a lot of territory. We've talked about who you are, your attributes. We've talked about creation and, and, and just that great act of love bringing us into, into being so that we might know you. We've talked about you and history and how you relate to the problem of evil. I pray now as we look forward in time, as we look into the future, as we consider some of these various visions for the future, um, that you might just give us clarity of thinking, that we might um, better understand and appreciate the great act that you want to accomplish and that you will accomplish in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, here we go. Answered prayers, it seems. So the question we're asking today is space colonies and AI, what does the future of humanity hold? So maybe you're familiar with this guy, Jeff Bezos. He became the richest man in the world recently. And so the question has become, how is he going to spend his fortune? Now, depending on the stack of Amazon, it, it, it fluctuates anywhere. It's about $130 billion, but that's quite a bit of money. And so the question was posed to him, well, how are you going to spend this money? And he has a plan. Does anyone know his plan? I mean, how would you spend $100 billion, right? That's a lot of money. Well, for him, the answer is space. He says, the only way that I can see to deploy this much financial resource is by converting my Amazon winnings, that's the money he made off of Amazon, into space travel. The solar system can easily support a trillion humans. And if we had a trillion humans... We would have a thousand Einsteins, a thousand Mozarts, and unlimited, for all practical purposes, resources and solar power. That's the world I want my great-grandchildren and my great-grandchildren's great-grandchildren to live in. So he has this vision of the future. He says, instead of us becoming stagnant and just being limited to Earth and maybe maxing out at 10 or 12 billion people, let's extend to the universe. Let's extend at least to the solar system. We colonize Mars, we can go up beyond there, colonize the moon, keep going outward. And then we'll be a trillion person species. So this is, this is Amazon's ambitions by Jeff Bezos. Now he's not the only one with this ambition. Do you know anyone else who wants to colonize Mars? Elon Musk, that's right. It's like when you become a billionaire, you know, this is just like the thing you do. So Elon Musk has a similar ambition. This is his, he's planning to colonize Mars and save humanity. Here's how he puts it. I really think there's only two fundamental paths. One is we can stay on Earth forever, but then eventually some extinction event's going to wipe us out. An asteroid, some kind of genetic weapon, some kind of nuclear holocaust, whatever it may be. He says if we limit ourselves to Earth, we're going to get wiped out eventually. So the alternative is, we need to become a space-faring, multi-planetary species. So we colonize Mars, and then we move onward. Because if we limit ourselves to Earth, eventually we'll be wiped out. And even if Earth gets wiped out, if we're on Mars, we'll be okay, right? 
So, so for Elon Musk, it's not just about expanding the potential of humanity. It's, this is essential to our long-term survival. And so the, both these men have visions of the future, and they're committing their time and their money, the billions of dollars, right? They're committing the, the life work, the life energy, into bringing about these visions of the future, that we'll become a multiplanetary species. Well, how are they doing so far? You might have saw this earlier, when um, Musk launched his Tesla into space. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty, that was pretty cool. It's, um, it's in orbit right now. You can, you can track where it is. It went past Mars and is on this orbit around the, uh, around the sun. It's classified as a space object now, so there's a Tesla flying in space, which is such clever marketing. Did anyone watch this Like when it was like on the news, you know, like the clips of this? It's like, oh, it just looks so trippy to see a car in space. You know, if I had the money, I'm tempted to buy a Tesla after this. I do not, but okay, so, so he's got the Tesla in space. That seems like it's something. He's also developed his reusable rockets. And so the idea behind a reusable rocket is, well, what we really need to do is drive down the cost of rockets. And so rockets are really expensive because you can only use them once, right? You shoot it up, you know, you reuse it up. That costs a lot of money to get satellites into space or to move cargo into space. And so Musk's plan is, well, if we can drive down the cost of space travel sufficiently low, that's the first step to getting us to colonize space. And so he's developed these reusable rockets, and there's been some really cool testing going on the last couple of years. Um, he has um, his Falcon 9 and his big Falcon Heavy and, and larger and larger ones he keeps developing and now entering into various agreements with NASA and other space organizations to transport people to the National Space Station, transport cargo. Really cool stuff going on. Free market works. Excellent. So how are we to think about this as Christians? Thinking biblically about space travel. I want to hear from some of you. How should we think about these visions to colonize space? We have a mic who, who wants to offer. How, how, how do you think? When you hear about this, how, how do you think about it? Yeah, right here. I was tempted to think it was crazy, mm-hmm. but they thought airplanes were crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, they thought iPhones were crazy. Mm-hmm. So I'm leaning towards, this sounds awesome. You know, let's, let's all go for it. But then, you know, it's like it doesn't really fit into the great controversy. Mm. Like, yeah, but... Yeah, I was tempted to think it's crazy, but then I was yep. like, well, every other cool thing we have now. When you say it doesn't fit into the great controversy, what do you mean? Like, uh, John didn't foresee okay. us living on other planets before Christ came back. Okay, very good. Uh, did he foresee us going to the moon? No, what I'm saying is, mm-hmm. like, uh, inhabiting. Okay, okay. Inhabiting. So, we can go the short term, but you don't, maybe long term, a little bit iffy. Okay, someone else. How, how do you think biblically about this? How do you think about here, just hearing these ideas about space travel? Yeah, right here. So God only created one planet to be habited. Okay. Did he? He said be fruitful and multiply. Is it to multiply to the ends of the earth or is it to multiply beyond the ends of the earth? Someone else. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, uh-huh. yeah, I kind of agree, um, kind of based on what you were saying. Like, it's not a part of the great controversy at all. It's not a part of, I don't think it was ever a part of God's plan for us to try to, you know, colonize as humans on other planets. Because 
really, when you think about it, Jesus is coming back to this earth to, you know, um, get mm. his righteous people yeah. from earth, not from other planets. And I feel like what we're seeing now, like, you know, sin, sin has affected earth, but yes. it also, I, I believe it affected also every, you know, things that we see that surrounds earth. So yep. maybe the atmosphere around it. So those planets might not be in like the perfect state that mm-hmm. God intends it to be, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. once he recreates everything. So yeah. that, I just think that it's kind of going against God's plan. And it's trying to say that humans have like the power to, you know, we can colonize planets. Mm. We can, you know, kind mm. of get out of what God's plan was originally for us. So, yeah, I guess the question there becomes like, what happens if Christ returns and someone's on the moon, right? Well, we've had people on the moon. Like, what would have happened if Christ returned then? Let's get one more comment in, and then I want us to, um, I want to offer some thoughts. Yeah. Well, I, I am not, according to my personal beliefs, this colonization might never happen. Yeah. Because Jesus will come before. Yeah. Or even it might not be possible. Yeah. But suppose it does happen. Yeah. We do have a command to preach the gospel everywhere. Uh-huh. So we have got to follow the people that go there and preach there too, probably. There you go. If we colonize Mars, we better be sending some missionaries. I'd sign up for that mission trip, right? Okay, that's good. That's good. So here, here are some thoughts. Here are some thoughts. That's good stuff. Uh, the first thing I want to suggest is that it's okay to get excited about space exploration. I think it's okay as Christians to get excited and geek out about this. Especially because we value the cosmos as part of God's good creation, right? So just as, as we can go out and explore the world as being co-creators and, and participants in God's creation, we can also go out and explore his good creation. We can get excited about this. It's fine. However, you must recognize that our ultimate hope is not found in a space colony, right? Heaven is not a colony on Mars. And we should be cautious to abandon stewardship of the world entrusted to us. That is, we should be cautious to say, oh, well, we can't solve this world's problems, so let's move to a new one. Because Genesis did entrust the world to us, right? And so we need to be, make sure that we're prioritizing solving the problems of this earth, even big challenges like climate change, whatever it may be. Now, granted, oftentimes, space travel has introduced new technologies that have helped solve these problems. So it's not necessarily an either-or. But it is something to be aware of in our thinking, that as we're thinking about it, we shouldn't be having a position of abandonment, because God has entrusted this world to us. Finally, notice Bezos and, and Musk, they're donating the billions, their life energy, based upon a vision of the future that they have. Did you catch that? He says, I, I have $130 billion, how am I going to spend it? Well, I have this vision of the future, and so I'm going to donate my time and my energy, I'm going to invest it into that. He's compelled to. We also have a vision of the future. I believe we have a better vision of the future. And that should lead us to give sacrificially as well. Right? Just as the same energy that these individuals are putting into their projects, really cool stuff, we should be putting into the Advent Project. We should be putting into our better vision of the future. By the way, it's the last day of the year today. So if you haven't given tithe yet for 2018, this can be a little reminder Right? Because if Bezos is giving his billions to build spaceships, maybe we should be giving some of our money to be saving souls. Make sense? Yeah. Cool. Let me remind you there about tithe. Well, here's the next vision of the future I want us to talk about. Talk about space. Let's talk about artificial intelligence. So we have, we have Moore's Law here. And what Moore's Law shows is that over time, 
we have a, an exponential growth in the number of calculations possible per second given some fixed amount of money. So, so you look at like the number of, of, of transistors on some chip and it keeps doubling. And so this is a logarithmic scale. So it looks linear, but it's actually exponential. And you go back in time and you see that over time, we've been able to accomplish more and more calculations per second. Now technology is getting more and more powerful. So where is this leading? Well, one thing it leads to is, did you see Watson on Jeopardy? So Watson is a, is a supercomputer by IBM, and he competed against Ken Jennings. This guy was like a Jeopardy champion, right? It, you might have followed Ken Jennings, every answer he had down. But here comes Watson, destroyed Ken Jennings. Maybe he was faster at clicking because he was a computer. That might have been it. But Watson was able to answer the Jeopardy questions and win a massive winning on Jeopardy, beating the top human competition. There's been other cases like this, too. Um, Google has developed their um, AlphaGo and, and various other deep learning um, algorithms that have been able to win in chess and in the game of Go. Like These are really complicated games. And we now have artificial intelligence that's able to beat the best human players in chess and in Go and in other complex games. There's also these chatbots you can talk with online. Have you ever talked with one of these guys? I was talking clever about last night. I said, would you like to attend GYC? He goes, maybe. And I'm like, it's in Houston this year. He's like, what month? It's happening now. And he's like, no, I'm at school. I can't come. You carry on conversations with these things. So we have this, this what seems to be emerging in artificial intelligence. We can give lots more examples of it taking place. Has anyone seen any other examples of artificial intelligence being used? Yeah, let's, let's get the mic here. I'd like to hear a few of the examples that you've seen. It's just it's taking over. It's really cool. Um, well, uh, I've seen Jap Japanese people have done a lot of stuff with robots. Okay, so there's some um, robotics. Yeah, there's some um, Japanese uh, industries like Samsung and others that have done some really cool uh, robotics. Uh, mm -hmm. Some like uh, faces... There's some really cool facial recognition stuff that's going on. So I'm not sure if that's where you're getting at. But yeah, we have some really cool technology that's able to do... Uh, so whenever you're on like, social media, sometimes you get like a little alert that's like Facebook's like, oh, someone took this picture of you, right? And it used some algorithm that detected your face in someone's picture and alerted you to it. So that's right. Very good. Anyone else? Have you seen artificial intelligence being used in a really cool way? Let's just geek out about it for a second. Yeah. Um, there's some stories in the news about uh, AI's Limited AI is yep. being used to try to catch tax cheats. Okay, very good. So analyzing a ton of tax data and finding some abnor ab uh, individuals that uh, stand out and indi some indicators able to uh, figure out that these guys are cheating the tax system. You maybe have also seen stories about um, AI being used to detect various uh, cancers. Um, you can take a photo of of a growth and determine if it's cancerous or not. The AI is pretty good at predicting it. Uh, anyone else? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think the biggest use of AI in artificial intelligence yeah. is self-driving cars. Oh, fantastic! That, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is going to knock a lot of people out of work. Yeah, so we have the introduction of self-driving cars. It's been um, introduced like a Tesla and other lines. We have limited self-driving, where they drive you on the highway. But fully autonomous self-driving cars are on the way. They're being tested. There's still a few problems to work out there. But yeah, very good. So here's the vision for where this is going. It's called the singularity. The singularity is the belief that the, at some point we'll invent an artificial superintelligence. 
So not just an AI, but an ASI that will appropriately trigger a runaway technological growth resulting in unfathomable changes in human civilization. So this is what an ASI is. An artificial superintelligence is some kind of intelligence that surpasses the human intelligence in every way. So we'll develop uh, a computer that's smarter than humans in every way. So what will that do? Well, that artificial superintelligence will then be able to create new technology. In particular, it will be able to create a machine that's smarter than it, right? And it can do this really, really fast because it's a machine, right? It can do thousands and thousands and thousands of computations just instantly. And then it will create this smarter technology that will then be able to make a smarter technology, and you just get this, this domino effect, right? And so the moment we introduce a superintelligence, it's just going to build up its intelligence, and then we're going to end up with, I don't know, some AI overlords or something, right? That's, that's where the vision goes. And so the question is, okay, how can we... How can we, is that, is that the future? Is that the future that we have? Well, there's a couple things I want to say about it. The first is we should understand what's actually going on when we talk about artificial intelligence. And that is, artificial intelligence is not true intelligence. Here's one common model of machine learning that we do for a lot of tasks. Well, the first part we do is we give the machine a whole bunch of data, saying these are pictures of cats. Imagine we want to program the machine to identify what's a picture of a cat. And so we give them a whole bunch of data of, you know, these are all pictures of cats. And then we test the machine. We give a bunch of pictures of cats, maybe some dogs, and we see can it distinguish between the two. And then we train the machine. And, and based on our data, initial data, maybe it has pretty good accuracy, but it messes up sometimes. So then we retrain it. No, that was a dog. No, this is a cat. And you give it a whole bunch of data, and you train it to distinguish between a cat and a dog. But here's the key thing. The machine never actually understands what a cat is. The machine doesn't have intelligence, doesn't know what a cat is. All it's done is learn to recognize patterns based on tons and tons and tons of photos. So with your photos on Facebook, it goes through all of your photos, right, in, in your timeline, and you probably have like a ton of them. And based upon the, your facial features there, it builds a facial profile for you. And when a, when a new photo comes up, it can identify and be like, oh, this is probably a photo for you with pretty good, of you with pretty good accuracy. But the machine doesn't know what you look like in any meaningful sense. All it's done is it's been able to identify patterns. It doesn't have the intelligence. It doesn't have understanding. So when we look at these AI tasks, we see that they're very proficient at doing things. But we should not mistake proficiency with understanding. Is that distinction clear? It can be very proficient at doing a task, an automated task, but just because it's proficient at it doesn't indicate as any underlying intelligence. It's not able to do the more complex, creative task. It doesn't have that kind of intelligence. It's just been trained to recognize patterns and data. Yeah, quick comment. We can get the mic over here. They are trying to do that. Though. That is the goal. That is the goal. That's right. Very good. But I want to say a few comments about this. The first comment I want to make is that AI, super powerful tool, use it, right? And, and I don't know if you're in a position to in your, in your ministries or, or in, in your jobs, whatever it is. Don't be afraid of it. Powerful tool. We can use it. We can take advantage of it. But, but currently, AI doesn't understand problems. Now, there is that goal to develop some kind of deeper level of understanding. But I want to suggest that the assumptions that machines can actually reason, 
that they can actually make choices, that they could ever do things like love, all these aspects of being human, it relies upon a diminished view of humanity, a view that says humans are just biological machines. And I believe that humans are more than just biological machines, that there's more going on with our intelligence. I believe this for both mathematical and theological reasons. Um, This um, work of a mathematician by the name of Gödel, and his work suggests that there are inherent limitations to machines, that they can never do the kinds of tasks that humans could do. But also theologically, we believe we're made in the image of God. We believe that we're more than just a biological machine, that there's more than just chemical reactions, that that there's something, uh, some kind of spark of divinity in us that allows us to do things like, like reason and choose. And so I think that under the biblical worldview, it's difficult to believe that machines will ever actually be able to have intelligence in the sense that humans do. Is that fair? One last thing I'll say is that just as the singularity is a vision of the future that's radically different from the past, so does the Bible present a vision of the future that's radically different than, than our present. But our vision of the future that's radically different is grounded upon God's intervention. It's not grounded upon technological advancement. And so we need to be resistant of visions that say that we're going to bring about this utopia. It's not that our technology is able to solve these kinds of deep problems. We believe that we ultimately depend upon divine intervention to bring them about. Well, let me introduce one more kind of technology and get some of your thoughts about it. Brain-machine interfaces. So, so this happened back in 2002. Uh, Jans Newman got a, a brain-machine interface. This, he was a man who was uh, blind. He wasn't born blind. He developed blind, blindness. But through a brain-machine interface, that is um, some machine that was implanted into his brain, he was able to recover sight. This is him driving, right? Maybe you don't want to be on the road at the same time as him, but, but there you go. So he was able to recover his sight for a couple of years before he, before he passed away. Here's another example more recently. Uh, headline reads, Stanford researchers develop brain-controlled typing for people of paralysis. That is, without touching a keyboard... Simply by thinking with a, a brain-machine interface, with, with an implant, that it was able to detect the person's thoughts and allow them to type. It was a very slow and it was kind of a, a difficult process, but by visualizing a part of the screen, they could type those letters and, and send various messages. And so here's a new technology that's being used to help improve the quality of life for people, allowing them to communicate. But Mark Zuckerberg got his hands on it, and what do you think he, he saw in the potential in this technology? You can type without using your hands? Oh, this is going to revolutionize how we use social media. Here's a post he posted recently. He says, okay, a recent conference, we just announced this. He says, our brains produce a ton of data, enough to stream a 40 movie every second. The problem is, is you know, we can, only, we can only talk. It's not a very efficient way of getting that data out. We need a better way to get out the data. So he says, we're working on a system They'll let you type straight from your brain about five times faster than you can type with your phone today. Just by thinking the thoughts, you can type them and send a message. He says, even a simple yes or no brain click would help make things an augmented reality feel a lot more natural. It's like, just, just by thinking a yes or a no, or by sending some message, you'll be able to send messages with your brain. And so this is, this is he has this, a team of engineers working on this to try and develop this technology. How do you feel about that? Elon Musk goes, okay, let's take it to the next level. These guys are always trying to outdo each other. He recently invested in the company Neuralink. 
And he says the long-term aspiration of Neuralink would be to achieve a symbiosis with artificial intelligence. We want to develop artificial intelligence and then hook up your human brain with an, with an, with an AI system. Because if we have billions of people that are each connected with some high bandwidth link to an AI extension of themselves, everyone would be hyper-smart. You'd have some, some connection with an AI, and so your intelligence would be enhanced. Wow, that's kind of a crazy vision of the future. So I'm taking it even further. It's called the transhumanism movement. Is we need to, to, to go beyond our biological limitations. We need to transcend past humanity. And they have a couple of steps. You know, we began by modeling simple brains. And once we're able to model more and more complex brains, then we need to find a way to connect the brain to the computer. And then eventually, you can upload your consciousness to a computer. And then you can manifest that in various robots. And so you'll be able to have an uploaded version of your consciousness somewhere out in the cloud that can then manifest in various robots. And therefore, you can live forever. You can achieve immortality. That's the hope of transhumanism. Here's, here's one book on it. It's called Becoming God, Transhumanism in the Quest for Cybernetic Immortality. How we can, by uploading our consciousness to these various AIs, we can become super intelligent and live forever. We can go beyond our biological limitations. Here's one more attempt to achieve immortality via technology. Crinotics, what it does is, well, when someone dies, immediately when they die, it injects their body, you thin out, you pull out the blood, and then you freeze them, and you freeze the individual, and you wait 50, 100 years until we develop the technology to revive them. And so there's a number of individuals who are going through this process, it costs somewhere between twenty and $200,000, depending on which company you go with, to have your body frozen and locked away until science develops the technology to revive you. So here are some attempts to achieve immortality through science. Okay. A few things I want to say about this. The first is there's a myth of progress that's easy for us to buy into. And the myth of progress goes like this. Notice every year we get a better cell phone. You know, a new iPhone comes out, or the new Pixel, or whatever your preferred phone is. And therefore, we see the reality of technological advancement. And sometimes people infer from technological advancement that we are advancing as a species, or advancing as a society, or advancing morally. But it's important to recognize that technological progress is not equivalent to moral and societal progress. That as our technology advances, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're advancing as a society. In particular, while new technologies may help us to solve some really important problems, they often come at the cost of new unanticipated problems. Let me give an example. Social media, a fantastic technology allowing us to stay connected and reconnect with more people. But what's been the cost? Major depression on the rise among everyone, new data shows, especially in teens. One doctor commented on this. There's a lack of community. There's the amount of time that we spend in front of screens and not in front of other people. If you don't have a community to reach out to, then your hopelessness doesn't have any place to go. And we see when we look at teens, the rates of suicide and depression and loneliness have all been skyrocketing over the last decade. In particular, it affects young women. Young men spend a lot of time on video games. You know, that may have other effects on them. But young women spend a lot more time on, on social media. And so there's a, a comparison factor that can lead to depression and loneliness, right? And so but it's impacted everyone. 
We're all being impacted. There's this epidemic of loneliness happening right now. Loneliness is becoming one of the top killers in the United States. It's crazy, right? That uh, How is this? We're so connected, and yet that technology introduced a new problem that we didn't foresee. And so I just want to keep in mind that when we imagine technology solving our problems, we're often blind to the reality that's going to be creating new problems that we don't anticipate. Okay, I want to hear from you. How can we think biblically about technological progress? Should we be afraid of it? Should we embrace it? How can we think biblically about technological progress? Yeah, let's get a hand right there. I'm af- I am afraid of some technology, but I also have a scientific background in technology. Mm-hmm. But I think it, when people create things, I think God creates things, so they're using their uh, – if people are creating God's image, they, they also create things. Beautiful, yeah. Yeah, but, but, you know, like the technology, I, I'm not even on social media. I think that's – it's crazy. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. no, that's true. So um, our ability to innovate is us participating in this, this creation mandate, is, is us, is, as being made in the image of God as we're acting that out. And so it's true that the innovation is not a bad thing. Technology is a really exciting, cool thing that we can do because we're in the image of God. But there's these, these, shortcomings, these shortcomings or these, these new problems that we don't always foresee. Yeah. Someone else, right here. Yeah, um, to your point about the, the problems that technology brings up, you have, you know, new ethical dilemmas that technology mm, brings right. up. But then I think ultimately, um, I, think, I think innovation, because I'm just trying to think uh, mm-hmm. Saul of Tarsus as he was making his tents, if there was a new way that he could use an AI to make his tents faster, ah. I can see him doing that, right? Um, but, but then at the same time, the fact that... or, or the, the perception that technology is the, is going to solve all the human problems, like, like immortality is going to come mm. through technology. I think that biblically is not accurate because ultimately we know what our, what our ultimate hope is. Yeah, yeah let's say a few more words about that. Uh, so on the, first, we should be on the front edge of finding innovative ways to improve the lives of those who are suffering. So I gave some examples of these technologies being used to improve quality of life. And yeah, let's be on the front end of that. That's fantastic. We absolutely should. Um, not, not to say there's no ethical dilemmas, but, but we should be the ones who engage and ask Christians to engage with some of those ethical dilemmas. But we tend to overestimate the role of new technologies in the short term. You know, self-driving cars, they're probably not going to be on the roads the next three years changing everything. But we tend to underestimate the influence in the long run. And in particular, we're blind to those new challenges that will come from those technologies. We, see, we anticipate the ways that make our lives better, but we are blind to the ways that are going to introduce new challenges. And finally, while technology can help improve the quality of life, ultimately only the gospel can solve the problem of death. I'm reminded of Hebrews, where Hebrews 2 makes the point that it's Christ participating in the flesh and blood of humanity. It's Christ defeating the power of death that alone is able to free us from the fear of death. And so we need to be wary of all these other attempts to achieve immortality. Right? This seems to be going beyond the limits of science. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about is how all technology is going to be disrupting the economy. So there's an Oxford study that came out that suggested in the next 25 years, almost half of jobs will disappear. What? What's going on? You have a number of disruptive forces. AI, robotics was mentioned, globalization, automation, digitalization. That's transforming the economy. And you've probably already seen this take place. You can think of a lot of examples. For instance, think of how Netflix transformed the way that people get movies. Instead of going down to Blockbuster 
and walking down the aisles trying to decide what movie to get. You now go to Netflix and you scroll up and down, up and down, up and down, trying to settle on what movie to watch. Yeah, I believe it's the one blockbuster in Alaska, right? Yeah, there's one last blockbuster trying to hold out, right? But you have Netflix and, and other competing companies like Hulu and Amazon Prime. You have Uber, right? Look what Uber did. Uh, that's how I got to um, the convention center from the airport. You know, I didn't go to a taxi. I just pulled up my phone. I requested an Uber. I saw how much it was going to cost me. I got in. You know, I tipped the person. What, what, what was, why is Uber able to do this? Well, it solved the problem in a really cool way. It's, it's okay, there's, there's a good... There's a good that we have a service called transportation, and there's a need that people have. And now via technology, smartphones, we're able to connect the, the need with the service in a really easy-to-use way. And so it solved this basic problem, allowing now the, the transformation of what's called the sharing economy, that people can use their own cars to, to transport people, Uber and Lyft and other similar companies. Or Amazon. Look what Amazon has done. A CEO's just announced bankruptcy. Uh, Toys R Us went out of business. Why? You're not going to take your kids to Toys R Us and deal with them in the store, right? Or drive down to Sears when you can just go to Amazon and click. And it's a great business model for Amazon because they don't have to worry about supporting big stores, right? They can just have their warehouses. And so you have these companies disrupting the economy. Can you think of some more examples? What's another disruptive company that's changing the way we do things? WeWork. Is that where you can like export some kind of task to? The... Oh, it's a collaborative workspace. Very good. Yeah, what's another one? Apple. Okay, what is Apple doing that's innovative? <laughs> yeah, no, well, things like the smartphone have made these other things possible. So that's right. So that's a kind of a foundational disruptive force. Yeah, it's very good. Can you think of another one? Okay, Google Docs, that's right. Um, uh, this presentation is on Google Slides, right? And it's nice. I can access it from anywhere. Even when my computer dies, I can access it from someone else's. Uh, Airbnb, right? Instead of going to a hotel and, you know, you don't need hotels anymore, so I'm going to just open up their home and share their home. And Airbnb creates a reliable system where you can trust people. Oh, but in order to have things like Airbnb, in order to have things such as... Um, uh, Uber Eats or, or Uber, these kinds of things, you need to know that people are trustworthy, right? So, so China's rolling out this new system right now of where people have some kind of social credit, right? And so you have like a trustworthiness score so that people know like, oh, can I trust them to sleep in my house for my Airbnb or, you know, drive my Uber or whatever. And, and it's one of these kind of ominous sounding things. You hear about social credit and you're like, huh, if I don't have social credit, then I can't participate in the economy. And it's really easy to say, like, that's almost prophetic, right? Like, like, if I don't have the social approval, I cannot buy or sell. Like, you can almost start seeing that in prophetic terms, how if we lose social credit. So, so it's coming out of these technologies, but you can begin to think about it prophetically as well. Okay, so what are all these disruptive forces doing? And what are the implications of them? Well, one thing I think that this should um, lead you to think about is... Your education. And what are you going to do with your lives? <laughs> so I'm going to recommend a, 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 a resource, a BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics. I encourage you to spend some time here. And you can go there, especially if you're a student right now, you're trying to pick a career. 
you can go there and they give you job outlooks. So you can go up there and you be like, oh, what's the future of nursing look like? And it has some pretty good data where it tells you, well, based on the change in demographics, we have an aging population, baby boomers are retiring, we have a lot of preventative care, there's going to be a high demand for nurses in the upcoming years. And so it's a good way to get a sense of, okay, is this a job that has a lot of demand? I pull up here mathematicians, you know, kind of close to my heart. Um, you see a lot of growth taking place, not surprising, because we have a lot of data to make sense of, and so that's where a lot of that growth takes place. But, but I want you to think just for a second about the implications for education. So I know a number of us are students or, or have students in our lives. Here's a really great book I recently read called Robot Proof, Higher Education in the Age of AI. It's, it's how can you future-proof your education? And the author of it suggests there are three things that you can do to future-proof your education. There are three new literacies that you need to develop. The first is data literacy. The second is technological literacy. And the third is human literacy. So data literacy is the ability to understand data. We have all this new data, which we're talking about AI, machine learning, massive amount of data coming out. We need to be able to make sense of that data so we're not led astray by it. So taking a statistics course... <clears throat> cough, cough, good idea. Um, le- learn a bit about data. Then there's technological literacy. You know, technology is becoming more and more of our lives. It's going to be really helpful to, to understand it. So taking some computer science courses or, or you, know, f- you know, even some great YouTube channels out there that you can follow just to learn a little bit about data technology. But what I was really interested in is this author really stresses that in order for us to have an education prepares from the future, not only do we need to understand education, but we also need to focus on human literacy because there are aspects of being human that we cannot automate. Things like judgment and collaboration, curiosity, communication, empathy, teamwork, leadership, cultural competency, being able to communicate with those in different cultures and, and interact with them, ethical reasoning, that these are tasks that we cannot automate. And so in the future, in this new economy, those who are able to do these kinds of things well, that's what's going to be really valuable. And so, so he makes this point. He says, in order for us to think about education in light of artificial intelligence, we need to think about how to develop those things that are uniquely human. And so we need to think about what it means to be human. And so then ultimately what education becomes is education becomes about thinking about, reflecting about what it means to be human. Which is interesting because when you look at the data of what young people are thinking about, what they want to accomplish with their lives... The highest one right now is finish my education. There's a good reason for this. Uh, Gen Z, this is like current teenagers going into college, they grew up in a time during the financial crisis, during um, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, there was a lot of financial insecurity that they saw. Maybe they saw their parents, their siblings, their friends go into financial insecurity. And so they want to establish financial security. They want to finish their education. They want to get a career. They want to become financially independent. These are the biggest goals. But very low on the list are these other aspects that are the being human things. The grow spiritually, or enter into a family, get married and become a parent, or care for those who have needs. You know, these getting human things are very low on the priority list. And I think that's a shame because if this change in economy tells us anything, it's that the jobs are constantly going to be changing. But what you need to have is a robust skill set that will allow you to move from job to job, and the very skills that will be in demand are the uniquely human skills that we're not prioritizing. These aspects like family and spirituality and these kinds of things.
And so when I was thinking about this, I realized that as Adventists, we have a vision of education that's so well geared for this new economy. In the book Education, notice, notice what it said. Page 13. Our ideas of education take too narrow and too low a range. There is need of a broader scope, a higher aim. True education means more than the pursuit of a certain course of study. So it's not just trying to get a particular job. And that makes sense because if in 25 years half the jobs are going to be gone, then your education shouldn't just be about getting a particular job because that job might be replaced by a totally new technology by then. What does it mean? It means more than a preparation for the life that now is. It has to do with the whole being, the whole human, and the whole period of existence possible to man. It's the harmonious development of the physical as well as the mental and spiritual powers. It prepares the student for the joy of service in this world and for the higher joy of service in the world to come. And so when you recognize that that's the vision of education, what a shame that's so low on people's priority list is doing things like serving those in need, right? Or doing things like developing socially and spiritually and doing these other kinds of things. Instead of just focusing on education and getting a career, well, if you actually want a solid education, you need to think about education in terms of developing your whole person, right? I want to end with a vision of education that um, Ellen White puts at the end of the book. She says, heaven is a school. Here's our ultimate vision of the future. It's a it's field of study, the universe. It's teacher, the infinite one. A branch of the school was established in Eden, and the plan of redemption accomplished. Education will again be taken up in the Eden school. And so in some deep sense, we were made to participate in lifelong education. Right? Each one of us should be growing spiritually, physically, uh, intellectually, emotionally, socially, we should be growing more and more, and that should be a lifelong ambition, because that's what we'll be doing in eternity. And that's the vision that we have of eternity. It's a really cool vision. It's a vision of us growing in knowledge, not just to glorify ourselves, but to glorify God and better serve those around us. Okay, I want to pause for your questions, comments. I'm a professor, so I had to end on education. But let me pause for some questions and comments you might have. Thinking about the future, we're trying to think how we can think biblically about the future, any questions or comments that come to mind? Thanks so much for your um, presentation. And I, um, I, what I really appreciate, especially about the first part, is that you um, helped to sort of demystify uh, technology for mm. us, right? There's a lot of suspicion about it. But one thing I'm wondering if you could address, um, and you also balanced it out with things that we should consider based on mm. the Adventist worldview. Mm. Um, in my experience teaching and just being in Adventist communities, one of the fears of um, technological progress is that it contributes to a surveillance state. So mm-hmm. this idea that, well, if I partake of this technology or yep. even help it, that it'll help the government to collect data on me or yeah, it'll help yeah. other people to collect data on me. So how do you address that from an Adventist? Well, that's like the idea of social credit, point. right, or social capital. Yeah. Where it, it, like you can see how these kinds of technologies kind of call for it and demand it, right? Like if we're going to be in a sharing economy where I'm opening up my home to people and, and sharing my car and these other services, it's great. I love to use Uber and I love to use Airbnb, but it then kind of leads to, oh, but then I'm going to have my information about me, my reputation out there, and that's going to influence my ability to participate in the economy. And that's going to create some big concerns about liberty that we might have, right? And so I think that's a totally valid concern that one can have. I, I, I just think it's valid. Does that mean you don't do social media at all? 
You can make that choice if you want. I think there's actually value in that choice. I think it's a legitimate choice. Yeah. I was just thinking of like at the very end. Okay, the, the technology is interesting, but it, it makes life very complex. Yep. And at the end, if you can't buy or sell, lest you, ha- you know, maybe people are going to have to have some basic like survival skills. Yep. Instead of a, you know all the technology things, yep. they might have yep. to have some practical things. And sister, sister White even said maybe it would be well to be able to learn how to ride a horse. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I think that on the one hand, um, I mean, we saw some really positive uses of technology to alleviate human suffering, right? When we should be passionate about this, as you know, Christ tells us to, to go out to the world and do this, but also to spread the gospel, right? I mean, so the, we, we can use technology in some really fantastic ways, and I think there's value in being technologically literate. But, but I think you're right that you know, sometimes there's this myth where we think that the, the medium of technology does not influence the message. But it totally does, right? Like the medium of Twitter totally influences the, 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 uh, the kind of interaction that's taking place, and it does impact our message, and we should reflect upon that. Technology is not neutral. It's doing something. I'm not saying it's always bad, but it does have in some influence on the content of our message. And so we should reflect upon how the technology has influenced it. It could be a positive influence. Maybe it's allowing us to communicate the message more effectively, right? But there could also be some drawbacks, and I think we should be critical about it. Now, yeah. right back here. So part of the problem here is these companies... There's economic incentive to pursue technology as quickly as possible. And there's not incentive to pause and exercise judgment and reflect upon, wait, is this healthy? Is this actually making the world better? And so in your own life, you shouldn't necessarily always be the quickest to adapt every new technology, you know, adapt it into your life, because maybe you need to pause and think, well, let me exercise some judgment, right? Before upgrading to the new phone each time, let, let me stop and, and just think about how is this actually influencing my quality of life? I'm not saying that that conclusion will draw you to, therefore, I don't want a smartphone. I'm going to stick with the you know, flip phone. Maybe you stick with the smartphone, but maybe in that reflection you realize, oh, here are some limitations I'm going to build in. Here are some safeguards I'm going to build in. And so we just need to be critical in how we think about and relate to technology. Yeah. Question. Yeah, I have a question about AI. Yeah. Um, in your talk, you talked about how um, complicated it'd be to reach a super intelligent AI. Um, yep. Would Would you say that like the um, the concerns that Elon Musk and Sam Harris have voiced are yep. unfounded then, over the technology getting away from us? Mm. Um, so I have been trying to articulate already the way yeah. in which technology is getting away from us. Oh, okay. But it's, it's not, the same, it's as, not the same as the vision that... Well, well, so they have a particular vision of these AI overlords, right? Mm. And like the moment we develop some ASI, some artificial superintelligence, that it's going to trigger, it's going to continue to grow exponentially fast, and we won't be able to, to stop it, and, and we won't know, you know its values, and it may not have um, good judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, as a Christian, I'm hesitant to the, this view of AI. I'm hesitant to the possibility of true artificial intelligence, okay. right? Uh, from what we have accomplished with machine learning, that seems really impressive. When you dig into what's really going on, there isn't any true intelligence under the, you know, under the hood. Yeah. And, and from my understanding of what it means to be human, I think we're more than just biological machines, and so I don't think we can replicate this in a, um, in a computer. So I don't think that there's ever going to be a machine that's making, uh, you know, that's evil, you know, I, I don't think it's possible for a machine to be evil. 
you could push back on that. You maybe think that is possible. But from my understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God, I, I don't think it's possible yeah. for us to develop machines in that capacity. That said, I think there's really good reason for us to exercise judgment and discernment about the technology we're developing and think about, well, knowing that the technology often has unforeseen consequences, maybe we need to develop systems and safeguards to limit how quickly we embrace technology to give us some buffer time to see what are some of those consequences. And I think that's what they were more for is like doing doing research in AI more, um, uh, be careful about it. That's the right. The way you do it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And they're calling for more regulation, and I think that's fine. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to do more comments. Um, we have some up here. And I don't know if there was... <coughs> so you just touched on this a little bit, but... As someone who's a developer in the field of computer science, I know there's probably a number of us here who are in that field. Yep. Um, Which is, I want to affirm that. I don't think we have enough Adventists in computer science. So more of you should do this. Amen. Go into it. Okay, fantastic. Yep. So when we think of these technologies that could be used for bad purposes in the future, say, imagine facial recognition could be used oppressively. Yep, yep, yep. But it's not in itself a bad technology. So... And there's plenty of others that fit in this category. So how should we as Christians relate to, say, if I were to work on a project that involved technology that could be used yep. dangerously, yep. Um, maybe there's safeguards now, but we're yep. advancing the technology to a point where if someone implemented it without those safeguards, how should we relate to that? Yeah, that's a really good question. So at Andrews University, we're releasing this new data science program. And as we've been developing it, we're like, we got to require a ton of ethics courses, right? Because it's like, there's just so many ethical issues that come up in this capacity. Um, I think the biggest thing that you need to carry with you is this tension of recognizing that any technology you are developing may have these consequences. And, and so you need to like have this live tension you carry with you. Um, that doesn't mean that you don't do any technology ever. But that means that when you're given a project, before just blindly saying, yeah, I'll develop that, you actually take some... So I had this friend. I was in a philosophy class my freshman year, and we were talking about a problem like this. And I had this friend. He was just brilliant. Brilliant guy. He was studying mathematics and physics, and he was just like next level, you know? And I was in this philosophy class with him, and this problem came up, and he asked the question. He says, someone asked me to build a bomb. And I build them the bomb. Why does it matter how they use it? You know, I did my job, and that's on them. And when he said this, I was just so terrified. Because this is someone who's, like, so brilliant. I'm like, you can build a bomb, you know? It's like, he actually is, like, you know, is studying physics. And, like, I'm like, you're actually going to be in a position of responsibility? And that's your thinking? Like, you should at least carry with you this, like, ethical tension, right? And, And try and be intentional to say... If I'm studying and learning how to program, I should probably also be studying some biblical ethics on the side too. And, and, and so I have a framework in which I can thoughtfully engage with these questions. And so I hope we feel some sense of burden to do that. Yeah. Very good. Uh, let's get one more question. I'm going to Andrew and then up here. All right. <laughs> um, with help with... Uh, some AI and stuff mm-hmm. are more smarter than... 
Yeah, so, so we, we have a variety. You know, I, I gave a, a, a model here of this, like, uh, of machine learning. We can go into neural nets. And, you know, you can get to... So what, what's actually, you get to this place where we don't actually know how the machine's doing what it's doing, which makes it kind of creepy, right? Because it's like, we, we, you know, you have these teacher bots and you maybe have some genetic algorithm or something. And, and what you do then is, is you run this genetic algorithm that produces some... You know, some something under the hood, and it's you know like YouTube recommends the next video for you to watch, and it uses a pretty so sophisticated algorithm to do this, so and no one actually knows what the algorithm's doing, right? No one actually understands what it's doing, and so you know there, there's something that seems kind of mysterious there. So know. does Netflix. Yeah, that's right. They have these algorithms that they train. But what I'm saying is, but you shouldn't think that the machine is like thinking, right? It doesn't have the kind of understanding that we, we mean when we talk about understanding. It, it's doing complex pattern recognition and, and clustering. And we can go into some of the mathematical models of what it's doing, but it's not actually thinking in the way that we understand thinking and understanding, right? It's, 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 a, it's a world of difference apart. Well, let's get one last question in, and then we can, we can break. Hi. Um, yeah. So... Uh, so I'm basically writing an AI chatbot for churches. Okay. And I've been, so Very I'm, cool. I'm, I'm doing a yeah, lot of this. Yeah. Um, but my question is, is that if we can't really quantify consciousness. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, right, 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 right now we can't. Does it really matter the fundamental, uh, inner workings of how the machine is producing the results if the results are very much human-like and could do it, you know, faster, better, quicker than humans. Yeah. Does it really matter, um, <laughs> you know, what the internal capability is something I'm interacting with as long as the result of what I'm getting back is, you know, typical of a human, right? Yeah. If, if, if I'm interacting with something and I can't tell the difference from the result standpoint yeah. that this is a human versus this is a machine, yeah, yeah, yeah. then does it really matter, yeah. you know, if, if, if a machine is, 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 you know, using, you know, these very complex, um, you know, equations versus human beings. I'm pretty sure on a human, on a human level, even though you go past the biology, yeah. you get to the chemistry, you go yeah. past the chemistry, you get to the yeah. mathematics. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, we're, 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 you know, we might be doing a very roundabout yeah. so, similar so this way. Is good. So. This is a good question. I think what it gets to the heart of, when you say doesn't matter, well, it, it maybe doesn't matter for some task, which is why we can automate those tasks. Uh-huh. I mean, that's precisely why we can automate it, is because the output is the equivalent to the output of a human or superior to the output of a human. However, it does matter for questions such as, are we ever going to trust these things to make moral judgments or ethical judgments? Uh, do we believe them to be capable of love, right? These kinds of things, we, we understand there's some deeper aspect of being human that, that we don't have a purely reductionist view of humans, a human is not just a machine. We can't just break it down to the biology. That there's something about being made in the divine image that says we're more than this, right? And so I think as Christians, we would resist the view of saying that, well, you know, actually love is just reduces down to chemicals and therefore you can program it in a machine, right? Like, no, we actually have a deeper and richer view of these things. And I think what we're going to discover with AI in the next 10 years, if I were to make a prediction, is that... You know, all of our great prophecies of what we think we can program, we're going to realize, oh, it's actually a little bit more to being human than this. These are a little bit bigger challenges. And so we'll continue to do really cool things, like make programs that can win or go and, and do these really cool tasks. But we can't create programs that have the deeper ethical or moral or spiritual or these other um, aspects of being human, right? Or even judgment. Well, we haven't really defined those things either, so... Uh, 
Yes, but I think that we would say that whatever, however you define it, it's more than a mere reductionistic definition. That, that being Christian means that we understand there's more going on here than just biology. Yes, there is biology, but it's more than just a mechanical process. We're made in the image of God, and that entails something a little bit heavier. Okay, well, I hope we, um, that's a good uh, note to end on. This high view of what it means to be human. And that's kind of been a theme throughout a number of these, that, that Christianity preserves this high view of what it means to be human. And that's something that we can share with others and call them to a knowledge of God. Because in God, they can find the greatest fulfillment, right? They can see that the choices actually have significance, eternal significance, right? That, that they're not just machines that are living out, but they have a will. There's a moral weight to their life. That in some sense, when you embrace the Christian message, you're moving from seeing the world in black and white to seeing it in color, right? That there's a deeper richness to all these things. And, and that, you know, we cannot simply automate these things. So very good. I hope um, you take that with you. Let me say a closing word of prayer, and we can, um, we can adjourn. Yeah, Father, truly, life takes on so many dimensions of color and richness when we see it through the lens of your love. We recognize ourselves as the object of your love, created, redeemed by you. Father, as we've gone through in these various seminars, we've looked at you as creator, we looked at your redemptive work. We saw how you're dealing with the problem of evil. And now as we look into the future, really exciting things we can do as image makers, made in your image. But also recognizing some of the limitations of, of life apart from you. Recognize the only hope is found in you. Father, I pray that we've been equipped to think more carefully, but also love more generously those around us. To show them a clear revelation of who you are to answer their objections, but also live a life that's so attractive that they're drawn to you. That's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC to the End in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.